Hello and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with all your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor on New Civil Engineer. I'm joined by our news editor, Rob Horgan, as we talk through the latest developments in the world of civil engineering. Hi Claire, how are you? I'm good, but I had hoped we'd be back in the office by now to record this podcast, but we're all working from home again. And although we don't look set to have a national lockdown just yet, the regional restrictions we've seen so far, which are mostly in the north of England, Wales and Northern Ireland, don't seem to be placing limitations on the construction industry the same way as the ones we had in the spring did. Yeah, that's true. Uh, And I'm sure we'll come back to that later on and and the impact of coronavirus on the sector uh, more generally. So on the subject of the North, though, our special guest today will be Tim Wood from Transport for the North. He'll be talking us through the mega project that is the Northern Powerhouse Rail and talk to us about the benefits it will bring as well as the challenges ahead to deliver the work. But I think we'll come back to the news first. I'm going to be grilling you quite a bit, Rob, today on what's been going on in the news for the last month because I've been off for a while following surgery on my wrist. So sorry if I am interrogating you a bit. Um, So I think there's one topic that hasn't been really out of the headlines on NCE over the last month or so, and that's Hammersmith Bridge. Rob, can you give us a recap of what happened in the last month and where we are now? Yeah, of course I can. And, And there's plenty to talk about although very little in the way of progress, I guess, in terms of the last month. Um, Unfortunately, the Hammersmith Bridge saga has become the latest political football to be kicked about, mainly between government and Sadiq Khan, um, with Boris Johnson himself leading the attack, saying that the the closure of the bridge was entirely the fault of Sadiq Khan, and if Sean Bailey, the Conservative mayoral candidate, had been in power, then the bridge would be open, which, quite frankly, is is a bit of a ludicrous thing to say, I think. Um, as as many of our readers and listeners will know, problems with Hammersmith Bridge have been going on for a long time now. In fact, the need to release funding for the bridge repairs was needed when Johnson was may- in the mayor's hot seat, spending £43 million or so on his garden bridge. So to put the blame 100% at Khan's feet is com- a complete fallacy. Um, coupled with that, it's not actually TfL's bridge, it's Hammersmith and Fulham's bridge. So... That's where the problem has been this whole time in, in terms of who who funds it, whether it's council, whether it's TfL, whether it's government. And I think the one thing that Hammersmith Bridge saga, if we call it, has um, has shone a light on is, is how local governments and devolved powers are not working with central government in the way that they should be. I guess a lot falls down between the cracks quite literally with Hammersmith Bridge when this kind of problem comes up. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly that. Everyone sort of says it's not their responsibility to fund it or they're not giving enough power or enough money to fund it. Um, The government has now finally committed to some funding for the permanent repairs since uh, Transport Secretary Grant Schaap set up his task force. Uh, What that funding is or what it actually means, we're still waiting, as, as are we still waiting on what the task force wants to do both on a temporary basis and on a permanent basis. There are quite a few different options, aren't there, open to them? There are, yeah. So uh, it's been six weeks, I think now, six, seven weeks since the task force was set up. And what they do seem keen on is a ferry option. Uh, they said they're looking at this, several different ones. In New Civil Engineer, we we 
published a proposal tabled by Moxon Architects, which involved a, a floating bridge and a navigable pontoon, which looks quite interesting, although there were a few comments about how the bridge race would go ahead if that was the case, or how river traffic would pass this floating bridge, um, which I think might deem that unsuitable, but we'll, I guess we'll see. Um, and obviously there are, there are still calls for a temporary pedestrian and cycling bridge, which the task force has said it hasn't ruled out. In fact, it said last week that it's, um, it's found a more easily constructible temporary bridge to the ones proposed by Pell Frischman, I think about a year ago now it was first proposed by them. So uh, yeah, I, your, your guess is as good as mine as to what we actually end up with. So it sounds like there's still plenty to come on this story then. Yeah, like I said, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of sort of political handbags, but there's been very little progress in the last sort of month or so. I guess on the subject of handbags, the other subject is funding for Transport for London. There's been lots going on in Parliament this last week really around that. Passenger numbers just aren't recovering, are they? And without the fare income, the service just doesn't seem to be viable. And there have been threats to close down major roads. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, you're, you're right to say that the, the, the TfL funding issue is unfortunately going very much down the same path as the Hammersmith Bridge funding spat. If you believe what the government has said this week, then Sadiq Khan bankrupts TfL and it's all to do with his fare freeze that he imposed. However, in reality, Khan inherited a £1.5 billion TfL deficit when he became mayor, which he had reduced to just £200 million before March, um, before COVID hit. So uh, TfL's financial woes are not 100%, but 99% to do with uh, a drop in passenger numbers and to do with a, a, a massive decrease in revenues, which, you know, it couldn't in a million years have planned for. No, you'd never expect that, would you? No, exactly. I mean... Um, in the same way that other train franchises have sort of been bailed out. I think that's what TfL are asking for. And in the short term, I think that's reasonable. In the long term, I think that maybe they need to look at different ways of raising revenue. But in the short term, I think a grant, I think they're asking for £5 billion to cover the next 18 months. Personally, I think that's not too much to ask for. As we're talking now, there, there seems to be at loggerheads with one another, the government and TfL. However, by the time this podcast goes live, there might be a deal in place. At the moment, it seems to uh, it, it seems that negotiations are breaking down further by the day rather than improving. So, who knows? What we do know is Grant Shapps has tabled a series of conditions, including an extension to the congestion zone, an increase in council tax for Londoners. Uh, removing free travel for the young and for the old as well, and a hike in fares on both the tube and buses. Um, Sadiq Khan has turned around and said he's not willing to accept any of those proposals. They do sound pretty draconian, really. That's the exact word he used, actually. Draconian and vindictive is what he said. Well, I suppose if they're looking up for levelling up the country, they're disadvantaging London, maybe, so they've got more money for the north. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe that's what they're doing. Um Although I don't think they've been too kind to the North in recent weeks if you uh, if we perhaps got Andy Burnham on the show. No, that's true. But um, in terms of roads being under threat of closure, as you mentioned, um, TfL identified that as a real concern in its revised budget that it has put to government um, and it's calling for £2 billion over the next 10 years. And that would be part of a, a longer budget, not so much needed in this 
this sort of short-term funding deal that they're looking for to continue operating for the next 18 years. That would be that would be in a longer term sort of funding stream that they're looking for. Um, so that's to cover repairs to roads such as the Rotherhithe Tunnel and the A40 Westway, Lambeth Bridge and Vauxhall Bridge as well, which are obviously all key key roads in the capital. Um, and without which, without repairs, sorry, they could all go the same way as Hammersmith Bridge and face face closures. They're they're already all facing some sort of restrictions, whether that's weight restrictions or speed limits. So I don't think it's too dramatic a jump to make to assume that without the repairs they could could face closures as well. Yes, that's in the short to medium term. But what about long term? What does this funding shortfall mean for future transport projects in London? I've had a lot of companies saying that they do hope to return to the office in the future, but few can imagine actually going back five days a week and people are thinking more about going back two to three days a week. So there could be a real long-term impact on passenger fares, which is really critical for these future schemes, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And um, it, Sadiq Khan himself has been quite realistic about that and said that they do need to find new ways of raising revenues. But in terms of TfL's plans, they've, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, they've submitted a, a revised uh, budget, if you like, or a revised wish list of projects that they want to carry out over the next 10 years or so. And, and they've been quite realistic in terms of saying what they can't do. So projects such as Crossrail 2 and the Bakerloo line extension look like they've been kicked into the long grass for now. Um, doesn't look like they'll get underway in the next 10 years. There has been some talk about both of those schemes using a sort of land over le- landowner levy to, to fund them. Um, whether or not TfL explores that as an alternative remains to be seen. What schemes it is prioritising is the DLR extension to Thamesmead and upgrades to Northern Line at Camden Station. Both have been on the table for quite a while and both have been delayed um, initially by cost overruns to Crossrail. So that's what TfL wants to do now. However, all of those schemes obviously rely on a long-term funding stream being implemented or fares going back to what they were pre-COVID. Um, and I know TfL Commissioner Andy Byford wants a five-year funding grant so that they can really commit to these uh, capital projects. Hmm. But I guess it's not just a London problem either because we're seeing um, the train operating companies are not being given back their franchises as was expected in September the government's managing those for longer term. So I wonder what that does mean. And does it mean that the Williams Review, when it eventually comes out, is actually out of date already? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Williams Review has been pushed back and pushed back for well over a year now. And However, the main sort of conclusions out of it in terms of revamping the franchising system uh, have sort of been out there already. And there was an interim report, I think it might have even been a year ago or six months ago at least, that the interim report came out. Um, in which those interim conclusions have already started to be implemented. So what else the Williams Review will say when it does get published, I'm, I'm not too sure. The other one which may be more important to, to our listeners perhaps is the rail enhancements pipeline. Um, so it's over a year now since the government first announced funding for that pipeline. However, it's yet to, to provide a list of schemes with, that will be within it. And it was earlier, it was late summer or early early September that the government announced that it was reviewing that pipeline to see what was appropriate for a post-COVID world. 
yet we're still to see what that looks like. And the, the longer it drags on, the more uncertainty it will sow within the industry. I suppose the other thing that's been delayed or cancelled is the budget as well. Yeah, that's right. The budget has been cancelled, but but the government has announced that it will be revealing some kind of spending review in November. I think it's going to be a year-long one to begin with. Yes, it's not the, not the normal three- to five-year plan. It's just a year, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of a sticking plaster, if you like, to appease appease everyone, give a bit of certainty. But I guess I guess it's a sensible decision trying to figure out where we're going to be and what we're going to need in three to five years' time is quite difficult in the situation we're in right now. And perhaps it is a sensible decision to say, this is what we're going to do for the next year and we'll see where we are next autumn. Yeah, but is the National Infrastructure Strategy and the Carbon Net Zero Plan that's supposed to run, run alongside that? That's still expected to be published this year, though. Ex- yes, exactly. Those are still expected to be published this autumn, which could mean December the 30th, I think. I think that's the political <laughs> autumn rather than the autumn me and you would know. Um, so, yeah, the National Infrastructure Strategy, obviously, one that we've all been waiting for for a long time. Um, the Carbon Net Zero Plan, perhaps a bit more interesting now, especially alongside the Energy White Paper and the Heating Plan, which is expected this autumn, with developments around nuclear power, particularly ones to look out for. Obviously, Last month we spoke about Horizon and how it had backed away from Wilford Neuid uh, plant. So it'll be interesting to see what the government actually wants to do in terms of nuclear in the long run. My feeling is that it's uh, it's willing to back sort of these small nuclear reactors, but less appetite appears to be there for these bigger schemes now. I guess they're big mega projects. They take such a long time to come on stream as well, which is the challenge. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to get a small nuclear reactor up and running um, I've, I don't know if there's any out there in the world or any plans to to look at. I suppose you're talking about years rather than decades which is a normal thing for a, a large scale nuclear plant. Yeah exactly and I guess there's more to go wrong on a, on a larger project and the last thing the government needs is another major project running over budget and, and being delayed. I guess one of the real challenges coming out of all these delays to the spending review, the budget and stuff like that, is it's just at the point where companies really want that certainty about what's coming through. Because I think that's one of the things why so many people have been made redundant in the construction sector, is that companies just don't have that visibility. And this change to the spending review is just going to make that worse, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. As you say, there's been a lot of restructuring, I think is the uh, polite term people are using for... uh for redundancies. And, and I think that's affected all corners of the economy, construction and engineering included. Now, Boris Johnson promised that infrastructure investment would be key to the economic recovery. And so it's time to hopefully get these plans in place and get some of these strategies and papers out there in the open so that so that the companies can plan with a bit more certainty. I guess we just really don't know where everything's going at the moment. It's really not shaping up to be the 2020 we all expect it to be. I mean, this week, new civil engineers should have been hosting the British Construction Industry Awards in central London to an audience of more than a thousand, but clearly that can't happen. So instead, we're going virtual and we'll have the ceremony next week. But I guess one of the real benefits, if you can find a benefit in all of this, is that it's now free to anyone. You know, anyone can sign up and come and watch the event. So you just need to go to newcivilengineer.com and sign up and watch it live on the 5th of November. And you can also find out more about the shortlist as well via the platform we're using. Yeah, going virtual and and making it free to everyone certainly adds a new aspect to the event. 
And we also have our transport week coming up with the future of Bridges on the 9th of November and running through until the Thursday that week. But I'm not sure we'll ever completely replace a physical event. No, I think you're right. I think the future will perhaps be a mix of the two. Much like, say, people going to the office part-time and working from home part-time, you'll have physical events and perhaps a virtual version too where you can go to a network at the physical event and meet people. But if travel's a real barrier, then there are more options open to you, more than there have been in the past. Yeah, exactly. And with that in mind, we, we still very much need better transport links to travel faster, more efficiently and in a more environmentally friendly manner in the future. Yeah, it's true. I think that'd be a great time now to bring in our special guest. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Joining us today is Northern Powerhouse Rail Director Tim Wood. Tim has over 24 years of experience in railway design and delivery and previously held two rail director positions in the private sector. He is known for early development of rail PPP schemes and partner and stakeholder management. If you've had the pleasure of speaking to Tim before, you'll know he's very passionate about two things, railways and the north. So without much further ado, Tim, welcome to the Engineers Collective. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Hi, Tim. Great to have you on today. Um, I think the last time we actually met up in person was at the, the Tory party conference in Manchester last year, which, if you think back to it, that seems like a completely different lifetime ago with everything that's happened in between. Um, during the conference itself, there were plenty of pos- positive messages around investment in the north and northern powerhouse rail in particular. Uh, so if you could just catch us up on what's happened in the, the 12 months since and where northern powerhouse rail is right now. Thank you, Rob. Well, development work on Northern Powerhouse Rail programme has continued at pace. The programme has recently been through a SIFT process, uh, where better performing corridor options and a preferred way forward have been identified by partners. The outcomes will be going uh, in front of the Transport for the North uh, board in November for agreement. And those recommendations, along with the phasing uh, scenario proposals, so how and when the NPR network could be delivered, will also go before members uh, actually in that November board as well for agreement. So subject to the board's uh, agreement overall, the North will have chosen its NPR network and the rail future it wants for the region uh, over the next sort of 100 years. And I think what's really important is just how we've brought that together. We've worked in a real collaborative way, uh, bringing together the local transport authorities in the North uh, and the political and business leaders to make these really fundamental decisions. So we'll have a preferred network and we'll also have a preferred phasing scenario. So how we're actually going to look to build out NPR uh, into the future. And looking forward to the next couple of months, it's likely to be a busy autumn for you. Can you just run us through some of the big things to look out for in the coming months on Northern Powerhouse Rail, please? So the NPR programme is approaching key milestones with big decisions to be made on our preferred network forming part of the business case which we'll present to government in March 2021. As mentioned, the November board is a significant moment for the programme, looking at the submission to government early next year. The the programme's strategic outline case is on schedule to be submitted in March for consideration. And beyond the short term, what's the timeline for NPR and how we're going forward? 
Well, actually, you know, I absolutely remain steadfast that we'll have spades in the ground uh, by the mid-2020s for Northern Powerhouse Rail. And of course, we needed to consistently remain on track, hitting our board dates to be able to get agreement from our members uh, on how we move forward uh, before we get to that strategic outline case and submit that to government. And that's a key part of the jigsaw puzzle. Once it's approved, it's submitted to government as a piece of statutory advice. And then, of course, we wait to see uh, the government's response back to us. So are there any aspects you're hoping to accelerate in line with the government's pledge to restart the economy by speeding up infrastructure projects? Oh, absolutely. Uh, We're really clear that actually we've already started. So although we talk about a mid-2020s spade in the ground, we're already starting development work now on two main stations on the network. One is the new Barnsley-Durham Valley station, and the other one is the Rotherham Midland Mainline station. Uh, And these are key pieces of infrastructure, uh, particularly for our Sheffield City region partners, to actually get moving uh, and show that you know, we continue on at pace. The other piece as well uh, of of work that we're underway with is to get surveys uh, done between Leeds and Hull, uh, particularly around the the track uh, and also overhead line as well, uh, so mass structure positions, etc. So that will continue as a rollout programme across the uh, network rail piece of uh, infrastructure that we'll be working on, some more the enhancement side there. Because after all the sort of years of experience I've had, where are the two main problems? Well, the two main problems, firstly, are buying the land and who owns that. The second is what condition the land is in. So either the new land you've bought or the existing land that you will be working on. What are those issues? Let's get those bought out early on so we start to mitigate the risks at an early stage And of course, you're able potentially to reduce your costs and give a more firmer figure for delivery. So just touching on government and government policy again there, uh, if we could look forward to the integrated rail plan, uh, what do you expect from that and what do you expect it to look like and and how does that affect your, your plans for Northern Powerhouse Rail? Well, we await the findings of the National Infrastructure Commission assessment, but we hope that the government's integrated rail plan Uh, set to be published later this year, will commit to a sustained pipeline of investment for the North that uh, that includes both HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail. We just need to see a 20 to 30 year pipeline of infrastructure investment for the North, backed by the government. That recommitment as well to TransPennine upgrade, for example, uh, is really welcome news, but delivered in isolation will not bring the major step change that's required for the region's railways. The commitment to Northern Powerhouse Rail in full, alongside the commitment to HS2 and to be delivered in full, that is both the eastern and western leg, is part of the solution. But this must be supplemented by funding for local transport schemes, including active travel projects. So we really want to see a holistic vision coming out of the integrated rail plan. And it's quite right. We want to see value for money, you know, as taxpayers, We want to make sure that the money is invested wisely. This investment in NPR will be the biggest investment the North has ever seen. We want to make sure that we can seamlessly integrate with 2B, uh, the HS2 we're building. Uh, And I think what it does is it really brings together uh, those programmes. So you're looking at resources, you're looking at supply chain, you're making sure that um, uh, SMEs are really engaged in uh, both 
early contractor involvement, innovation, and bringing forward some real clever solutions that we can start to potentially bake into delivery models of these. You know, they're long-term schemes, 20 years involving tens of thousands of people. And coming out of the back end of that, we really want to leave that legacy piece as well. You know, what will these great engineers do after completion of NPR and 2B? There's worldwide opportunities. There's actually developing further railways in um, the north of England, as well as across the UK. So we want to keep that engineering skill. You know, what have we seen in the past? We've just seen boom bust all the time. We don't want to be training people. They complete pieces of work and then they move off. We want to make sure that there's a steady pipeline in all those rail disciplines. And I think that's very much coming to the fore now. You know, there's not much electrification left to be completed currently at the moment. You know, we've got uh, Warrington grade separation. Uh, we've got some other pieces of work just being finished off uh, up here in the north. But then that could be it. There could be a hiatus for three or four years. And that's where we want to bring in an opportunity, maybe a nightingale moment. Where could we get some programmes of work actually started even earlier? Could we move to Leeds to Hull being electrified quicker? That's what we, the kind of things that we want to see potentially that may come through the integrated rail plan. So what is it for you as a priority to improve the rail industry? Is it accelerating projects or creating a pipeline of work? Or is it something completely different or a combination of those things? So it's a combination of those things. And it's also seeing absolutely that steady pipeline. You know, we're always turned on, turned off, turned on, turned off in the railway industry. And I think it is important that we can offer jobs to people, long-term prospects, helping them uh, develop in their careers, in their disciplines, their chosen disciplines. And I think what we've ended up doing is actually bespoke pieces of work that don't necessarily have a follow-on. So I think a good example of that would be the Old Court in Manchester. It's an £85 million scheme that was delivered uh, for network rail. But then there were other pieces of work that were also planned to be built to make sure that the Castlefield Corridor functioned correctly uh, and allowed the amount of trains through that was, uh, that was originally set out. What you tend to find is that pieces of work are done and then the rest of it has not been completed yet. So it's important you have a proper... 20 to 30 year pipeline that's what we've done in transport for the north we developed uh you know our transport plan strategic transport plan which is a 30 year really clear vision on roads and rail it needs to be funded of course and it always consistently needs to be interrogated and analyzed to make sure that um things are still very consistent with the original ethos behind the plans but sticking with it gives surety and I think right now in this country, that's what we need. We need surety to make sure that people are allowed to develop their careers and develop their lives as well. So building on that that sort of chain of thought in terms of moving from one project to another project, if we look at, say, HS2 and, and even bringing Crossrail at this point, um, what what lessons can you take from, from those projects and how are you ensuring that Northern Powerhouse Rail's say, costs don't go in the same way as those two magic projects have done? Well, look, there are always lessons to be learned uh, for major project investment. For example, it's really imperative a detailed scope and options assessment of the projects are done and completed prior to a project start. 
Otherwise, the true cost of it just cannot be known. And that's why we're looking to get those ground surveys undertaken on corridors at this, this really early stage in NPR to have a full understanding of the potential costs. And it's important to note there needs to be recognition that the Treasury Green Book way of making investment decisions doesn't work for us. For years in the North, you know, we felt the impact of underinvestment and it's really time to make that change. Transport for North has long called for transformational approach to investment appraisals, which will ensure the North gets the investment it truly needs to kickstart the levelling up process. You know, let's let, let's just open this up a little bit further. I think uh, for us, we have done some fantastic major projects in this country. And it's all that learning, how we're managing to hold that in a repository where other big schemes come along and we're able to have a detailed analysis of what went right and what went wrong. And I've always been a key advocate that I think leaders in the rail industry should actually get together and have that sort of chat uh, really open to discuss the issues as well as the really good points and the really great opportunities they've managed to bring out that we can actually bake in and use those. Otherwise, what happens is we have to restart the learning again. And quite frankly, we haven't got the time to be able to do that. We want to continue moving at pace. One of the absolute key things we have with NPR is it's co-clienting. And I think that's a real key distinction. The co-clients are two really collaborative people. Uh, we want this program of work uh, to happen. And I think that deep understanding of both business case mated with someone that knows how to design and build railway infrastructure and able to provide that advice really early on in developing the business case has proved great dividends because we're so focused on the risks and the risk mitigation. We're focused on delivery and delivery models. We're focused on getting the best out of the business case possible and also building in a lot of new software programs that we've developed, Norms and Neelam, uh, which look at land value capture. Uh, they also look at sort of level three benefits over and above at treasury appraisals at level two that really bring out why would you build NPR? What are those key strategic reasons uh, leading up to our, our business case, which of course, as I said, will go forward in March 2021. So looking a bit closer at, at High Speed 2, I know you touched on it earlier in terms of Phase 2B and the importance of the, the Eastern Leg and the Western Leg. Um, what what are the main crossovers with Northern Powerhouse Rail? I know there's this phrase touch points is being used a lot. So where, where, are, where are those and what are the biggest challenges and opportunities for integrating the two projects together? So they're absolutely fundamental. And we've always called for both uh, HS2 uh, Western Eastern Legs to be built in full and transparent upgrade, uh, and how they dovetail into uh, the Northern Powerhouse Rail Network. So the key bits are the touch points. So we have a number of touch points where HS2's infrastructure, we will actually build off to build the NPR network going across to Liverpool uh, and across up to Manchester, and also from Sheffield up to Leeds. We were around about a decade behind HS2 when, uh, when NPR started, and what we've done is work really collaboratively with both HS2 and with the department to make sure that the number of platforms uh, has increased from two to four uh, proposed at Manchester Airport. 
uh, and also from four to six on the surface station at uh, Manchester Piccadilly. These pieces of infrastructure are vital to us. We've always been really clear that we actually rely on 80 kilometres of HS2 infrastructure. If we didn't have that, we would have to build that ourselves as NPR to make sure that the system worked. Uh, that would add on probably circa about £13 billion onto our programme. So working seamlessly, making sure that we're picking up uh, all those pieces of benefits. And then for us, in terms of dovetailing then in the programmes uh, and making sure that we can still keep the North running at the same time, because that's another key piece for us as well. How do you keep the North moving while you're spending potentially billions of pounds uh, on the infrastructure? So all the diversion routes are making sure that they will they will work for us. But it is ultimately about rebalancing the UK economy and it's central to securing our economic future and prosperity. It's really essential that Yorkshire, the North West and North East all have high-speed connectivity to the Midlands and the South. And we do absolutely want to make sure that HS2 Eastern Leg is developed in full. It completely dovetails into our work uh, and seamlessly gives us that connectivity that we need. So also looking at recent announcement in terms of HS2 design changes at Manchester Piccadilly in particular, what impact will that have on Northern Powerhouse Rail? Well, this is what we've been calling for very much uh, working in harmony with HS2 and the department. So we get those two extra platforms at Manchester Airport. We get those two extra platforms at Manchester Piccadilly on the surface station uh, and also making sure that we have the connectivity uh, of the various touch points that we will need. So uh, currently at the moment is uh, DRC2 that is out uh, for consultation uh, by HS2. We had DRC1, uh, which picked up the two key touch points so we could get across over to Liverpool. DRC2 is a little bit uh, different as well in the sense of picking up the Crew North connection. So that's where HS2 services can get back onto the HS2 line at Crew uh, and carry on up to uh, Goulburn Junction and then uh, up towards uh, uh, Preston, uh, Lancaster, and then carry on to Carlisle and, uh, and, and up to Scotland. So there's a lot of thinking around this to make sure that the pieces of infrastructure really work for the north, really open up that capacity and connectivity for us. So what does DRC stand for and why is it so critical to this project? So it's Design, Refine, Consultation. Right. And this is where uh, uh, HS2 uh, have gone out for public consultation on uh, their proposals. And basically, um, the government uh, has really reinforced the fact that we've moved forward at pace on the western leg, uh, first of all. Not forgetting, of course, that we call for the full eastern leg to be developed as well. But it's getting on that pace to make sure that we're out there as NPR really now exposed to the public in terms of uh, in terms of our touch points and what we need and i think we're looking forward to um you know getting our uh, the comments back uh, via hs2 uh, in terms of that consultation from the public and their thinking around it so you've mentioned it a couple of times now that that eastern leg of the route obviously that hasn't been included in the current consultation design changes um what 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 is the fear if that section is sort of delayed or pushed back later than the Western Leg? Um, what would be the main impact on, on Northern Powerhouse Rail? 
well, as, as I've said, we absolutely need the Eastern leg. Uh, there is no um, ifs or buts about that. And we've always said HS2 comes as one package uh, for us. For us, if there was a delay on there, then of course uh, we would uh, have pushed back our connectivity between Sheffield and Leeds, uh, which would give us uh, four fast trains an hour between uh, those two key city regions. Uh, we'd also lose, of course, that speed of connectivity uh, from Leeds uh, right the way down to uh, to Toten, and then, of course, uh, across uh, through Birmingham uh, and down to um, down to London in the southeast. You know, these are revolutionary times uh, in terms of uh, the speed and capacity that HS2 would give us, and. I think we lost the way in terms of the key messages. So the West Coast Main Line and the East Coast Main Line are practically at tipping point in terms of being really full. We needed to get a new line. You couldn't do open heart surgery on West or East Coast Main Line without potentially two decades of um, work going on, which would lead to massive disruption to the travelling public. So the new line is a really clear opportunity to get that capacity and connectivity and then speed into the network. And what we've been able to do uh, working with the department and HS2 is to make sure that Northern Powerhouse Rail really dovetails into those opportunities to give us that extra capacity, capacity and connectivity. We've called for two new lines between Liverpool, Central Warrington, Manchester, Central Bradford, and leads there are our key pieces that to be put into the uh, the new line infrastructure as well and i think the other key bit that maybe people uh, uh, fail to, to fail to take on board is that what that does with that extra capacity is it allows the existing lines to create more paths for regional railways it also allows more paths for freight trains and we've seen with this awful pandemic that's been going on, you know, the freight on the railway has really kept us moving. There's a whole piece around decarbonisation here as well. You know, an electric train uh, is just 1%, uh, you know, greenhouse gases that will be produced from that. Uh, and when you look at fossil fuel vehicles that we use every day uh, and those trucks, you know, we're producing 21% uh, greenhouse gases from those. One freight train takes 76 wagons off our motorways. So it's definitely the way to go. It's not going to be the panacea, but what's going to be really important with that extra capacity, you're going to be able to get those fast-moving trains quicker around the slow-movings, the regionals and the freight trains uh, to give that journey time improvement that we so need. The other key bit as well is we're always talking about getting faster to London. I don't ever think about that. What I think about is getting London faster to the north, Birmingham faster to the north, and those key pieces of economic benefits in the equation. You know, we're crying out up here in the north uh, for more better skilled, highly paid jobs. And what we need is a highly mobile workforce. Well, building these railways clearly would give uh, those opportunities. An example of that, Bradford to Leeds. It's roughly about eight miles. On a two-car pacer train today, it takes about 21 minutes. Is that acceptable? I don't think it is. 
So we've talked a lot about mega projects um, during this session, but it's not just mega projects that provide the learnings, is it? There's a whole host of smaller regional projects that we can be, can be learned from in terms of integration and optimising the whole project benefits, aren't there? There are an awful lot. There's great pockets of work, even in just two people collaborating together to find a solution to an issue. When you look at some of the great schemes that have happened uh, on the railways, you know, I would say uh, Stafford Alliance, that was a fantastic job where uh, a number of contractors worked really closely together with Network Rail. They kept the same conditional outputs, but what they did be able to reduce the price by uh, thinking about the infrastructure that they needed to build. On NPR, I'm not bothered what the cat badge is. So whoever works for their own company, I'm interested in that person and what they really bring to the program, their experiences, um, their wealth of knowledge in terms of potential innovations and how they can really drive that value for money, still helping us remain fully transformational up in the north, but bringing all that deep thinking. You know, a lot of people have had decades of experience. We've seen the good the bad and the really ugly and I think we need to bring that thinking together and keep the conversation going I've only used one key word in NPR which has always been collaboration it's about people having an opportunity to speak about uh, the programs of work that they've done to put that influencing into our designs uh, and then into our delivery and really bringing out the best in British engineering so the first passenger train, first intercity passenger train that ever went between two key cities was Liverpool to Manchester, you know, back in the very early 1800s. And what we want to do is to bring that skill in terms of that forward thinking, how we can evolve into having a northern powerhouse rail network that has, again, those world-class engineers working on our railway to make sure that we deliver exactly what we say in terms of our conditional outputs, keeping the programme absolutely on the outputs that we set ourselves and also in terms of the commercials, making sure that we remain in budget. So mega projects worldwide, there's only 2% that ever come in on time and on budget. I want to make sure that Northern Powerhouse Rail is one of those 2%. But, but how do you drive that change in, in mindset towards, obviously, a lot of people talk about collaboration. How do you actually go about getting that to happen? Is it is it getting the contractors to work together? Is it need to come from the clients? Or, or do you think there needs to be a more overarching guiding mind, as you were, from the government to sort of set out, this is how you need to go about doing a major project? I think what's, what's important to say here is that it's down to every individual whether they work for the government, they work for Transport for the North, or they work for the contractors, and about allowing them to really bring their great ideas to the table and having an open forum for discussion. You know, there are, there are no people in Northern Powerhouse Rail that will dictate a way forward. What we do is we bring in equality, we bring in that mindset that everybody's equal, and I think it's the best people for the job. So I've always called for the A-team, and I think I've got the A-team on, on, uh, on my score sheet uh, going forward. So what does that mean? That means that in three years I've been at Transport for the North, I haven't had one person leave the NPR programme. I've got a gender balance of 48% women, 
to 52% men. And we have consistent regular meetings bringing out with all our delivery partners, so that's HS2, uh, Network Rail, those real key issues and getting them resolved as quickly as possible. So nothing is hidden. It's all about being open, honest and transparent. Thanks, Tim. I think that's a fantastic message to end on there. We look forward to watching Northern Powerhouse Rail develop over the next few months and hopefully we'll be able to get on site with some PPE and visit you sooner rather than later. So thanks for joining us today, Tim, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.